Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts what will happen if we don't change and what can we do to create a better future. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next. The worry that I have is that this is one of the single biggest and particular attacks on the rights of women and girls in particular that we've seen you know, in a long, long time. Last week, we brought you a harrowing story of escape from Taliban rule. In August 2021, upon the withdrawal of all US troops from Afghanistan, the world watched in horror as the Taliban swept through the country with alarming pace, capturing towns and cities, including the capital city of Kabul, with little resistance. Monash University's Gender, Peace and Security Centre, along with its student-led International Affairs Society, leapt into action, coordinating the escape of a number of Afghan scholars and their family members. Many of these scholars, including our guest Parisa Secondari, are women or have spoken up on behalf of women, placing them at odds with a dangerous regime. Among the many tragedies of this ongoing situation is that many of the people forced to flee for their lives are the future leaders of Afghanistan, specifically women whose involvement in international relations and peace brokering could help end decades of violence for the conflict-ridden nation. Professor Sharon Pickering is Deputy Vice-Chancellor Education and Senior Vice President at Monash University. She's a leading international researcher in criminology with global expertise on border crossings, migration and trafficking. Sharon Pickering, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back, Susan. Let's start with an easy question. How is peace building gendered? Well, peace building is gendered in, I think, a whole, you know, a whole range of ways. Uh, I think that the assumption is often that, you know, peace is just quite simply the absence of war. And what every example around the world has shown us is that's actually not the case. Peace is a process. It is active and it needs to take uh, the whole community, the whole society uh, with it for it to last. And, you know, there are countless examples, whether they're across the Pacific or across the broader Indo-Pacific region, that when women have not been engaged in the process, when women have not been at the table at every level, that peace has been more precarious. It has more likely been about the absence of war rather than the um, the building of the civil institutions, the building of the participation, the transformation of uh, individual lives and the lives of, you know, of communities. So what do women bring to peace building that maybe men generally don't? Well, I think what, you know, so many of the leading scholars in this area tell us is that women bring uh, a whole range of experiences and understandings about day-to-day lived realities that if they're not at the table are absent. Uh, Issues around um, the perpetration of violence uh, against, uh, in particular, against gender, uh, against women and children. In particular, the inequitable distribution of resources when fighting 
uh, when fighting stops. Uh, the building of institutions that do not take account of a whole range of diverse experiences, not just actually about gender and gendered identities, but go well beyond gender. The kinds of things that we would talk about in relation to, you know, equity and diversity and inclusion of a whole range of people that if they are left behind, the peace is just so much harder to, to hold, uh, that the institutions being built actually aren't fit for purpose because they cannot respond to all of the, the, the people, um, you know, in a given community, in a, a, a given society. So those lived experiences, those lived experiences of what does it mean to try and get the day-to-day needs for your family? What does it mean in relation to try and access, uh, you know, education or work or all of the institutions that enable a community to uh, transition away from war? If those voices aren't there, the piece that is built is only ever partial. Is it hard to get women to the table? I think it's hard to get the door open so women can reach the table. Mm. Uh, What we see, particularly across the Indo-Pacific, are, you know, incredibly uh, impressive women leaders of organisations that are delivering on the ground but also, uh, you know, higher level, higher order organisations, if if you like, as well. Uh, However, the ways that the table has been assembled in the room, Mm -hmm. the number of seats at the table and the kinds of expectations for who uh, gets the first crack at filling those seats has meant that it's not been that there haven't been women, that there have not been a conscious effort to actually let them through the door to actually reach that, to actually reach that table. Mm Hi, I'm Natasha Stott-Despoir. I'm a treaty body member at the United Nations, specifically the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And I'm a former diplomat, former senator, and also recently chair of RWatch, the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children. Natasha Stott-Despoir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We know that in times of conflict, um, violence and the effects of conflict seem to be much more um, experienced by women and children. And yet so often they're not invited to the table to talk about the peace process or, or give their suggestions on how it should work or what's most needed. Why do you think they're not included in these conversations? Well, your point's really pertinent right now, isn't it? I mean, you only have to look at the images that are emanating from, obviously, the unfolding humanitarian conflict and awful situation uh, in Ukraine or more recently in places like Syria and, of course, Afghanistan. You don't see women around the table. In fact, obviously, Afghanistan, you don't see women at really any table. You know, it's uh, uh, there's a cabinet that's devoid of women. There are ministers that you know, ministry that doesn't include women. And obviously there's a lot to unpack in that. But certainly, particularly with the changing nature of warfare, so increasingly where civilians are targets now, um, not just collateral but targets, we've seen that there is a unique and and disproportionate effect on women and children or women and girls uh, when it comes to conflict, whether that's violence generally or whether it's sexual violence specifically. So why aren't women at that table? Well, I suspect you know that answer as well, the sense of uh, male-dominated institutions that we've seen in all countries, regardless of our developed or developing nature. Uh, so there's a lack of history, there's a lack of opportunity, uh, and there's also just the issue of power and the fact that uh, 
very few people relinquish power. And in most cases, men are not sharing that ta- that power at the decision-making table, even if, and this is the extraordinary part of it, even if it was to the benefit of their country or community or indeed, as we've seen, there is an inextricable link between success in peace agreements and peace processes when women are reflected and represented at the table. What do you think will be the future of conflict if women are continue to be excluded from the table where these decisions and solutions are discussed? Oh, well, I think it's a predictably negative one. Um, there's one statistic I really like and it's, it's, it's you know, I think it's applicable to any country or community, but they've actually shown that if you decrease the percentage of women in a parliament by 5%, you actually see that country is five times more likely to use military intervention when it comes to resolving international disputes. And that is just in my head at the moment constantly for obvious reasons. Let me interrupt. I want to make sure I heard that figure correctly. Decrease the number by 5% and the increase is five times the amount. Indeed. So that I'm going to check all my stats for you, but that's the one that's haunting me at the moment. But I guess the more reliable and other statistics, which are very clear, show that peace agreements are more likely to be robust, uh, sustainable, long-term, basically more successful if women are involved in that process, not only in the decision-making and the negotiating, but ensuring that the issue and the concerns uh, affecting women are included in those processes. So when you ask, you know, what's the future? Well, the future's pretty bleak unless we resolve some of these issues. And I would say across the board, not including you know, the talents of half your population, whether it's in peacekeeping, whether it's in negotiations, whether it's in the general, you know, running of your country, when we know that more women in leadership roles does lead to, you know, uh, maintenance of infrastructure that's better, uh, better distribution of public resources, uh, you know, really has a beneficial effect right down to measures as simple as profit and loss. So the future is bleak unless we really start to grapple with this. And as you know, and something that you've talked about often and and passionately, it's got to be a reflection that includes all our diversity and difference. Uh, It's got to be intersectional. So we can't leave people behind, but certainly we've left women behind for too long. What's your take on why there is that staggering difference? If you decrease the number of women by just 5%, the likelihood of going to war or conflict increases five times. How do you interpret why that happens? It's a really good question because it's a hard one, isn't it? Um, does it mean that women are, you know, have an ameliorating effect on mm. parliaments and countries? Well, not necessarily, although I'm sure there's many, there are many people who would sort of take a biological sort of determinist approach to that that says, well, we're mothers and we're more caring and we're this and we're that. And arguably, of course, there's some element of certainly the fact that women, and we know this from research, that women tend to reinvest more, uh, whether there is leaders in community or in parliaments, etc. They tend to invest more in issues that affect women and children. So there's a definitely a community-minded uh, element in that. We know that more women in those leadership roles actually does lead to efforts that better address the issue of violence against women. So I think that there is this... Uh, whether it's innate or otherwise, we know that women and diversity generally means you have 
uh, better approaches, different approaches. In terms of whether or not it means we're inherently peacekeepers, I don't know. I like to think so. Um, but the reality is diversity is good for any decision-making institution, and that has to include women, of course. Here's Sharon Pickering. Do you have examples of communities or cities or countries that have included women in the decision-making that have really demonstrated successful outcomes in terms of peace building and maybe then examples of the opposite as well when women haven't been included and there's been terrible knock-on effects? The one example I would give you is the absence of that Mm -hmm. and I think this is what we see um, this is what we see in Afghanistan right now. We were really fortunate at Monash uh, a few years ago where we hosted a senior group of uh, female Afghan leaders who came to talk to us, uh, were, had been very much engaged in uh, working through the peace process, had tried to uh, be part of that. But as those negotiations shifted under Trump's leadership, they were in essence, they were in essence cut out. They, were, they, they did not get anywhere near the space at the table that you know, we would expect given all the learnings that we've had from from other places, and that was for a whole host of uh, for a whole host of of um, uh, reasons. But there's a direct correlation between that and the fact that there are no girl children in schools right now in Afghanistan. Now, to me, it is implausible that a peace would have been brokered with decent with a decent proportion of women at the table. Uh, that would have got that outcome. It's implausible to me that that would have that would have occurred, and it has. And you know, for for every month, for every year, they are not in school. That will reshape the destiny mm. of Afghanistan. It will reshape uh, who leaves Afghanistan. It will reshape those uh, who remain behind. Mm. Can you see any areas where we can try to be hopeful about the future of Afghanistan, particularly for women and girls? It's very difficult to see that right now. Uh, You see that so many women and girls have had to flee Afghanistan because of uh, their participation in education, their leadership in education, their activism meant as soon as the Taliban came back into power, they were at increased and grave risk. And so, so many have fled. For those that are left behind, they face a a daily risk. For many of them, they are at home, unable to study or work. They've basically been immobilised. So it is difficult to see a way forward. That said, I think that we are seeing incredibly impressive leadership and incredibly impressive efforts despite those conditions. But the abrogation of responsibility by the international community has meant that they are incredibly isolated by the community of nations that that has abandoned them. What we are now working on is the mobilisation of civil society around the world to attempt to support them in whatever ways uh, that, are, that are meaningful. Uh, but, you know, there are very genuine prospects of famine uh, as they head into the depths of, of, of this winter. Uh, you've got an economy that has, you know, that has entirely... Uh, collapsed. So it is difficult to see that way 
forward, uh, it is not impossible, but we are now most likely at best facing years, more likely decades and generations until we see a, a, a genuine change. Here's Natasha Stott Despoyer. Tell us your take on what's happening in Afghanistan, particularly for women and girls. Um, do you have any hope for the situation there? Look, I'm hopeful and I guess something that gives me hope, although I'm disheartened, hopeful in the sense that look at the agency and the bravery and the strength of people in that country, but particularly women who have challenged, who have spoken out, you know, not only the women who are now expats in other parts of the world. I mean, some of the extraordinary politicians or former politicians who are speaking out in the international context the fact that we're talking about it is is important. The fact that you are seeing some action from countries specifically or, you know, the multilateral framework generally. I guess, though, I, the worry that I have is that this is one of the single biggest and particular attacks on the rights of women and girls in particular that we've seen, you know, in a long, long time. And, you know, I think the UN Secretary General has warned that this is, you know, this is symptomatic of what is happening with women's rights around the world because in the midst of you know a global pandemic which has done us no favors either when it comes to the exacerbation of sort of gender stereotypes and roles we've got some real problems so when you say hope i want to have hope and that's why i get involved in you know um different agencies in the hope that we will see change um, but we are scrutinizing very very closely and there are important recommendations that have been made, not only around ceasefires and, you know, provision of support and reinstating, you know, human rights and women's rights. I have to have hope, but this one really, um, it's really challenged me, to be honest. Mm. You mentioned that um, just remarkable statistic about the decrease of women by 5%, you know, correlating with an increase of five times the amount of perhaps going into conflict. I wondered if you've got any evidence of the reverse, that when countries, nation states, communities invest in women and girls, we see an increase in safety and security. Absolutely. There are examples around the world where not only if you have, I mean, it's, it's, it is proven apparently that if you have, uh, you know, greater gender equality, you are less likely to see that kind of civil conflict or violence, let alone violence uh, against or among other countries. I guess what I find fascinating too is that when we are talking about peace agreements, and as you would know, you know, it was only 20 years ago really, well, just over, that the United Nations Security Council came up with Landmark Resolution 1325, which for the first time acknowledged that unique role of, of women and girls in conflict. And it wasn't only about acknowledging the impact and the effects on women and girls as victims, but it was about recognising their essential role as peace builders. And there's certainly evidence around that, the peace agreements that have been struck that have involved women not only at the table, but civil society, etc. they've been more successful. Um, and we've seen, even in our region, you know, the extraordinary role of women in, you know, say Solomon Islands, places like that, Mindanao, you know, it, these examples of trying to resolve conflict in those countries have been aided and abetted, if not um, led by women. So there's definitely plenty of research out there that suggests it. So it makes you wonder, doesn't it, why aren't we, you know, seeking to reflect more equally or at least with some degree of parity in all our institutions around the world 
uh, the role of, of women in particular. So I, yeah, it staggers me. Even in our country, I don't understand why we're so far, we are so far behind the rest of the world now in so many respects. We're 50, 50th in the world when it comes to representation of women in parliaments. And, you know, we're 30 times behind our nearest, well, you know, neighbour New Zealand. I mean, that's extraordinary to me after such world-leading, really pioneering progress that we made more than a century ago. So it can happen anywhere. What is a feminist foreign policy? Oh, I love the F word in foreign policy. (laughs) You know, when I was ambassador for women and girls, I had that role between 2013 and 2016 in Australia, and I used to have what I called a title envy because some of my colleagues and counterparts, particularly from, you know, Sweden and Finland, you know, the really show-offy countries. No, I'm kidding. Um, They were all ambassadors for feminist foreign policy. And I thought, I really want that. But Australia wasn't then quite ready for it. I would argue, hmm, perhaps not ready for it yet. But essentially, you know, Lowy Institute and others, when we talk about a feminist foreign policy, it's defined as, you know, having a, a foreign policy in which no action, no program, uh, no project uh, can proceed without understanding its impact on and effect on women and girls, but also uh, making sure that any of those things contribute to increased gender equality. So, in fact, in many ways, believe it or not, Australia's foreign policy, when it comes to international development and foreign policy, does really centre gender in its policy but we're not quite brave enough to call it feminist yet. I hope that will change. To the average person, average Australian listening at home to this that might want to uh, support the women of, of Afghanistan but also um, help to sort of advocate for increased gender equality in international relations, although you do make the good point that we've got work to do at home as well, yeah. what advice would you give to someone that does want to help or contribute in some way? Oh, look, my answer when people ask what they can do is always really quite simple and that is just do something. Um, Have informed discussions, you know, contact your local community to see if you can assist, be that with, you know, voluntary work or donations or indeed the literal assisting of refugees in this day and age. I think the greatest thing I would like to see from the community is a bit more momentum, and there has been recently, I can't deny that, and it makes me really happy, but more momentum around changing Australia's uh, heinous laws in relation not only to detention, um, but, you know, the fact that what do we, I think we've committed to take 3,000 refugees from Afghanistan, and that initial recruitment was not in addition to our annual humanitarian intake. It was as part of it. And our intakes are so, so low. So I'd love to see more of a discussion and a debate and momentum build around changing these laws because they've been, I don't know, the bane of my existence since I was in politics and had to, you know, I was leader during the Tampa crisis. And, you know, that that was a watershed moment and, and changed community perceptions as well as public policy. Uh, in the most deleterious way. So people can, you know, you can lobby, you can donate, you can work on these issues, you can get involved in organisations, be they, you know, United Nations refugee work or whether it's the Australian Refugee Association. There are many, many others, refugee asylum support centres, etc. But I do think we need to, to change those laws at the very, very top end. 
An emerging theme we keep coming across on what happens next is the imperative of including diverse voices from all walks of life, of all genders, all ages, all identities in decision making. Whether it's at a smaller scale, such as making changes around your neighbourhood so that it's safer and friendlier to fight loneliness, or at a larger scale, such as including women in international peacebuilding processes, the evidence shows again and again that we need a range of voices to change our world for the better. Thank you to our guests on this series, Parisa Secondari, Professor Jackie True, Professor Sharon Pickering and Natasha Stott-Despoyer AO. And thank you too for joining us for season six of What Happens Next. This is the final episode of our season. We'll be back in a few short months with a new series investigating new challenges and how each of us can make a difference. You can also dig deeper into many of the topics we've covered in this season by visiting Monash Lens at lens.monash.edu. Do you have a topic you'd like us to examine in Season 7? We'd love to hear from you. Email podcasts at monash.edu with your idea. You can also leave us feedback, the good kind only please, by rating and reviewing What Happens Next on your preferred podcast platform. You'll find only the five-star button works. Don't take it up with us. It helps us improve and it helps listeners like you discover the show. In the meantime, be sure to explore our back catalogue of episodes such as right-wing extremism, hustle culture, the future of comedy and psychedelics for mental health. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next season of What Happens Next.